And it was as if the life was just draining right out of her. A famine forces her and her family to become refugees in the land of their enemies. There her husband dies. Her sons marry foreign women who turn out to be barren, and then her sons also die. And Brian did a great job last week of showing us how Naomi internalized all of these things that were happening to her and and all of this heartache. And we saw that the presence of her bitterness actually is a sign of the presence of her faith. She didn't stop believing that God existed, but she may have stopped believing that he was good. In the midst of all this heartache and death, though, Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth, we saw has this radical conversion. And while no one can deny that she obviously had some fiercely loyal love for her mother-in-law, there was something much deeper at work in her life that caused her to leave all that she knew and to throw in her lot with a bitter, destitute old woman and the God that seemed to have made her that way. This morning, we have a lot of ground to cover as we look at chapter 2 of this short book. So let me read our passage for us. I'm going to try to not get lost, uh, and then I'll pray for us and we'll jump right in. So this is... Ruth chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, She was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters, the original Presbyterian. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters, She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this She bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some of the stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up, and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. 
She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over from after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, He even said to me, Stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all the grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Jesus, there is so much wrong in this world. As we turn on the news each day and see more destruction, more war, more death, this life can seem to become very bleak. And yet there are also moments that that seem like serendipity. There are moments where sunshine bursts in, and so often we either fail to notice them or we fail to understand your work. I ask this morning, as we look at this story, as we see redemption beginning in the lives of your people, would you use it to remind us that you are at work right now in our lives? I ask that as I speak your word, that it would be your voice that is heard, comforting our hearts, telling us of your love. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, growing up, I did a lot of theater. And yes, I did wear makeup. And no, I did not walk around doing jazz hands all the time. Um, And so, when I first started, like in elementary school... Doing theater was really just about memorizing your lines, right? That was about as much as could be expected. They would put tape on the floor and just remember to stand here so the lighting guy can get you. And that's, that was your job, right? As I got older and continued doing theater in high school and college, though, it became much more important to not just memorize my lines, but I needed to learn other people's lines, not just so that I could know when, when my lines were coming next, right? But I needed to understand my character and the relationship that my character had with the other characters, and I needed to to unmask the motivations of my character and really understand why I was doing what I was doing and why I was saying what I was saying as that particular character. Well, this morning, I'd like to look at this long chapter uh, by looking at the three characters of Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi. And as we do that, we're going to see in these characters different qualities. We're going to see the boldness of faith, the generosity of faith, and the return of faith. And as we look at this story, it's going to be almost like we're looking at sort of like an antique chest, okay? So we're going to have to look at the details to understand the history, to to kind of get a, a grasp of what's going on. But then as we look even closer, we're going to realize that at the bottom of this chest, it's, it, there's like a false bottom. And so we're seeing all these characters that seem to be doing all of the action and pulling the story along, and yet we're going to remove that false bottom and see a fourth character who's actually intimately involved, working in and among Ruth, Boaz, 
and Naomi. So first we'll start with Ruth, and we'll look at the boldness of faith. The story of, of Corey Ten Boom is a pretty well-known story. Um, Corey and her family were Dutch Christians living in the Nazi occupation during World War II. And they began hiding Jews illegally in their home. Um, the Ten Boom family actually became so um, impressed with the need to help uh, hide these people in safety, basically, and get them away from the death of the Nazis, that they actually built a secret chamber off of Corey's room. And they, I mean, it was like sci-fi. Like, they put a ventilation part into it. They had a buzzer so that the people would know if someone was going to come on an unexpected raid, um, and they could sit there silently. Um, And so they, their home became known as the hiding place because they hid so many Jews from the Nazis. Eventually, though, for those of you that know her story, um, Corey, along with her entire family, were found out. And they're arrested and shipped off to Nazi concentration camps. And so Corey and her sister Betsy were separated from the rest of their family. And they remained together, just the two of them, at Ravensbrück concentration camp until Betsy's death. After months of severe torture and backbreaking labor and starvation, Betsy finally begins to die. And as she lay dying, um, Corey recounted later in one of her memoirs that one of the last things Betsy said to her was, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper. Corey was released a few days later. And she found out that just days after her own release, all of the women her age in the camp were executed. And she later found out that the only reason she was released was due to a clerical error. A clerical error lay between life and death. And this is what Corey Tenboom said God does not have problems, only plans. How did these women react this way to such horror? How is that even possible? The boldness found in Corey and Betsy Ten Boom was drawn from a deep, deep, abiding faith. And as we look closer at, at this episode from the story of Ruth, we're going to see a woman who has been so radically changed by her faith in Yahweh that, that she exhibits a humble boldness. She fights against the dull prospects of being a barren, widowed, foreign woman with nothing and no one. She has no one but an old, bitter, widow woman who has succumbed to despair and depression. We were told at the end of the last chapter that Ruth and Naomi had returned to Bethlehem right at the beginning of barley harvest. And Ruth wastes no time getting busy. She wakes up the next morning. She says to her mother-in-law, I'm going to go glean. I'm going to go pick up after the harvesters, and I hope that I can find someone who will give me favor. And the way that she says this, it's almost as if she's pronouncing to Naomi, her mother-in-law, what's been the prayer of her heart all night and all morning, that Yahweh himself would allow her to find favor in someone's eyes as she goes out and tries to help them survive in a barren land. Naomi is apparently too tired or too depressed to join her, and she simply just says, go on. As the story continues, Ruth finds herself in the field of Boaz. And as Boaz enters the scene, he goes and he checks in with his overseer. And it's here that we learn that Ruth has made a somewhat unusual request. And as the the overseer starts to explain to Boaz what she's doing and what she's asked, the the language is a bit difficult to understand. But 
The basic idea is this, that, that Ruth has asked for even more than is typically allowed in the gleaning laws of Israel. So way back when, in Exodus, when, when Moses was leading the people of Israel out of Egypt, and he, he gets the law and he brings it down to them, and, and this was to become the law of their society, right? God was their king, and they were to follow him in all of the laws that he had set up. And so one of the, there were certain um, built-in features into this law that would keep the marginalized people of their society from falling through the cracks. And, and one of those features was the system of gleaning. So during harvest time, the harvesters would come, and they would cut down the grain, and then another crew would come behind them and bundle up all the grain, and then they would haul it off. And the gleaners were allowed to get what was left over. And so, actually, it's interesting. In our culture, we say cutting corners like it's a bad thing. And yet, in, in Israel's culture, that was part of the law. They were supposed to cut out the corners and leave some for the gleaners so that they could um, have enough to live. Now, gleaning in this time was really just bare subsistence. I mean, it's very akin to folks that go through recycling bins to get the, the cans for the five-cent five return on them. I mean, that, it's, it's not really a good way of life. It's, you're barely even surviving. You're barely avoiding starvation. And Ruth realizes that, that she can't afford to just glean for herself. She's got an old woman at home who, who is either unable or unwilling to come and glean as well. And so Ruth needs enough to feed both of them if they're going to survive. And so Ruth, an outsider among outsiders, boldly asks if she can gather among the harvesters. Do you see that once Ruth placed her faith in Yahweh, in Naomi's God, that she moved forward in humble boldness, she no longer concerned herself with the fact that she was an embarrassing outsider. It's it's not just that she was like the new kid in class. I mean, she was the enemy. The Moabites were absolutely abhorred by the Israelites. They looked on them with such disdain and hatred. It's, there's really... a hard, you're hard-pressed to find an analogy that works for what Ruth is in this society. She's an enemy. She's a widow. She's barren. I mean, imagine, imagine that one of the widows of Osama bin Laden moves in next door to you and then immediately begins asking for favors that are far above the whole, can I borrow a cup of sugar sort of favor. I mean, this is, this is it's, it's almost obscene, right? This is the kind of obscenity that Ruth is is using here. She's She's the enemy. She has absolutely no social value in this context, and yet her faith has created in her boldness to ask for more than what the law allowed. Given Ruth's situation, I find her attitude absolutely remarkable. I could have understood one of two reactions. On the one hand, I could have understood if she was just completely downtrodden. I could have understood her maybe making this journey with Naomi, And then getting to Bethlehem and realizing she's in a new place where she is surrounded by people that probably hate her and just wanting to remain home, not wanting to go out at all, just, you know what, I'll die a slow death, whatever, and just giving up. I could also understand her reacting in spite and anger, clawing at things that she can get her hands on, anything within her reach, distrusting everyone around her, and yet neither of those is her reaction. Instead, she moves forward with her eyes fixed, on the God of Israel. She trusts that he is going to provide someone to look upon her with favor. But notice that her faith and her trust, it's not in some deterministic fate. 
she takes an active role. She starts going out into the fields and knocking on doors, as it were, in faith that the Lord is going to open one of them up for her. Faith in Yahweh has transformed this woman from a fearful worshiper of the demonic god Shemesh to that demanded child sacrifice into a humble, bold woman willing to risk everything to provide for those in her care. This is the boldness of faith. I've told you before, uh, Les Miserables is one of my all-time favorite stories. Uh, And for those of you that haven't seen the movie or the play or read the book, here's the Steve Notes version, okay? It's a story about redemption, and it's the redemption of Jean Valjean. And Jean Valjean was this uh, criminal who, who had stolen because he was needing food, and he ends up going to prison and does all this really hard labor, and he becomes so institutionalized and hardened and bitter that as soon as he gets out, he falls right back into thievery. But unfortunately, he steals from the wrong man. The man he steals from is Bishop Muriel, and instead of sending him back to prison, Bishop Muriel basically redeems him with generosity. And he, he really serves as, as almost the absolution of Jean Valjean's past, and he frees him to become a generous man himself. And throughout the book, there's this other character named Javert. And Javert is just this, you just don't like him, right? You don't really know why, but you don't like him. And Javert is a lawman, and he's been on Valjean's case for years. And Javert lived his entire life under the scrutiny of the law. I mean, this guy never took a bribe, never turned a blind eye, 100% of his life was given to following the law and enforcing the law on his culture. Javert has made Jean Valjean's existence absolutely terrible. And and really, the, the real threat throughout the story is that Valjean has become a better man, and he actually adopts this little girl. And so every time Javert enters in, there's this threat that Javert could remove him and put him back in prison, and then Cosette would be on her own. And this, I mean, Jean Valjean can't even fathom what this would do to her, and, and he does not want it to happen. There's this one scene towards the end of the book. The revolution is just going hog wild in Paris, and Jean Valjean is face-to-face with Javert, and he has this opportunity to kill him with absolutely no repercussions. And he knows, he knows for a fact, if he doesn't kill him now, Javert is going to come back, he's going to find him, he's going to arrest him, and he's going to send him to jail. And yet Jean Valjean lets him live. In a final twist at the end of the story, Javert actually fails his own moral code. And since the law was where he found his identity, he actually ends up committing suicide, and Jean Valjean is left free and is able to live out the rest of his days with his daughter, Cosette. Now, in our story, Ruth's request really could have been met with any number of reactions. We were told at the beginning of this book that this was in the days when the judges judged. That was a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was complete anarchy. So though there was this law code that Israel had been given, none of the people were really following it, and it wasn't being enforced. So she could have walked onto a field where the owner said, you know what, we don't really do the gleaning thing here. You better get out of here before you get hurt. But she didn't. She wandered into the field of a law-abiding man. And yet it's important for us to realize that Boaz was so much more than just a law-abiding man. If Boaz was a lawkeeper like Javert, he would have denied Ruth's request outright. He would have reminded her sternly, you're an outsider. You're an enemy. 
you first of all have no business being here among the people of God. And secondly, there are stipulations for gleaning in our law code. And you could have been satisfied with that, but you weren't. He could have told her that she was greedy and downtrodden her completely. And you know what? He would have been completely justified in doing so, at least according to Israel's law. But Boaz wasn't a man who was justified by the law. Boaz was a man who lived under the radical demands of grace. A man who lived by faith in Yahweh, the God who had marvelously and generously and miraculously pulled his people out of slavery in Egypt and brought them to a land that he had prepared for them. Boaz really embodies something that Brian mentioned in our last series on giving really, really aptly. Boaz understood that the land and the resources and the riches that he'd been given were not his at all. He was simply the caretaker of God's resources. He was simply there to oversee it, to take care of it, and to give of the bounty to those in need. And we see that the boldness of Ruth is met with extreme generosity on the part of Boaz. He not only grants her request to glean more than the law allowed, but he invites her to eat lunch with him. He feeds her so generously that she actually has leftovers, something that is almost completely unheard of in that culture, especially for destitute people. He then instructs his hired men to protect her and not harm her. He instructs them to help her by loosening some of the stalks of grain and leaving them for her. When I was in high school, my dad bought a 66 Mustang. I mean, come on. To drive that car, that would have been awesome, right? So let's go on a little imaginary journey. I'm 16, right? I walk into the living room. Hey, Dad, got a date tonight? Probably not. We know, we know it's imaginary. I didn't have a date. I've got a date tonight. Can I, can I take the Mustang? Can I have the keys to the Mustang? And let's imagine that my dad not only gives me the keys to the Mustang, but then he pulls out his credit card and he says, go for it, man, whatever you need. And then he calls the chief of police and he says, listen, he's going to speed. I know he's going to speed. Just don't give him a ticket, but make sure he doesn't get hurt. Protect him a little bit, but let him bend the rules a little. It's not a big deal. I mean, that sort of generosity is over the top, and, and that's exactly the kind of generosity that meets Ruth. Imagine being on the edge of faith Imagine your life is in shambles. The one person that gave you any social standing has died back in your home country, and now you've moved with your bitter mother-in-law to a place where you are a complete outsider. And then somehow, somehow you have the courage to actually pray to this new God and ask him to do something, anything. And then this happens. Can you even sense the overwhelming elation that Ruth must have felt. Boaz's generosity, though, is not limited to just providing for her material needs. The way that he speaks to her refreshes her emotionally like cold water in a desert. Do you see that Boaz's generosity could have been doled out through the overseer? So here's Ruth. She's an outsider. She has absolutely no social value for a very powerful man. His overseer tells him what she's requested. He's talking with his overseer. Ruth is over here. He could have just said to the guy, you know what, I'm a pretty nice guy. Tell her she can go for it. End of story, right? 
Boaz is the hero. The overseer goes and tells Ruth, listen, my boss is really awesome. He decided to let you do this. But instead, he walks right up to her. And he says, I've heard about you. I've heard about everything you've done for your mother-in-law, Naomi. I've heard about the way that you have chosen to cling to Yahweh. And whether Ruth realized it at the time or not, Boaz speaks to her in a way that actually compares her to Abraham. He says, you've left your father and mother and gone to a land that you did not know. What, Ruth is, what Boaz is saying to Ruth in a very hidden way is when I look at you, I think about Abraham. I think about my father in the faith, the one that had the covenant made with him from God. He invokes Yahweh to continue blessing her, to richly reward her because she has taken refuge under his wings. This is the generosity of faith. So at the end of a very long, very weary, but very exciting day, Ruth walks back into town with the fruit of her labor. And by this time, Naomi has probably chewed her fingernails completely off. I mean, it's dark. She has no way of knowing what Ruth met when she went out. It could have been contempt. It could have been violence. I mean, she's just been waiting at home, wondering what's happened. And here comes Ruth. And when she sees Ruth, and when she sees the amount of barley that Ruth has gleaned and threshed, she is transformed. Naomi is transformed from a despondent woman who can speak very clearly of her bitterness into like this stuttering, stammering schoolgirl who can't figure out which question to ask first. I mean, how did you, where did you, what did you? Ruth walks in the door with at least 30 pounds of barley. Unheard of. Unheard of for a gleaner to bring back that much after one day. Plus, she has the leftovers from her dinner to give to her mother-in-law. And rather than answer Naomi's questions about where she'd gathered, Ruth tells her from whom she had gathered. Boaz. A 30-pound bag of barley and the mention of the name of the kinsman redeemer is all it took. And Mara the bitter packed her bags and left, and Naomi the pleasant returns. No longer is her theologically correct bitterness being thrown about. Instead, she almost unthinkingly blurts out the name that she thought had caused her pain, and she says, Yahweh bless him. She's back to calling God by the personal name. Faith comes rushing back over Naomi as she tells Ruth, he has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. This is the return of faith. So we could, we could end our story here. And it's a great story. There's all sorts of reversal. It shows us the power of hope. I mean, each of us could take some moral instruction from this story. We could look at one of the characters and think, okay, I need to be more like that guy. I need to be less like this guy. It's a great story. And that all might not even really be that bad but it would be missing the point. Because when we tear back the veneer of this story, we see all along that this whole episode has been infiltrated by Yahweh, by the God of Israel. He's the primary actor. His motivations are the ones that need to be uncovered if we're to understand the motivations of the other three characters as well. 
So the narrator is a very, very skillful writer. And in chapter 1, he sets up for us the idea that God is superintending everything. The good, the bad, and the ugly. God is in charge of it all. And in chapter 1, if if we were to sit and really sit with Naomi, then we could retain retain faith along with her. But it would be very, very difficult to actually retain hope. Because it almost seems like God has become an enemy. But what's happening in chapter 2 isn't simply the return of faith. It's not just about bare belief. It's about the presence of God remaining with his people. It's about God putting himself into the story. And the narrator shows us this in just a a few ways very cleverly, so I want to look at those just really quickly. First, um, have you ever been in the middle of a story and you're so excited to tell it that you kind of leave out an important piece of information? So then you kind of have to back up and be like, oh, by the way, uh, this guy was, he was like an old relative of mine, and that, that's why it's important, right? The narrator kind of does this. He starts telling us this story, and we're going through the storyline, but he just kind of stops in the middle of nowhere and is like, oh, by the way, Boaz is related to Naomi's husband. So this is, we perk up, right? This is very, very important. It's like he can't even wait until the storyline introduces Boaz. He has to tell us ahead of time. It's a fact that it's pregnant with promise and hope. Then he tells us that Ruth just so happened to come to Boaz's field. So in in these days, um, the the town would be kind of situated, and then all of the agricultural fields would be all together, sort of like a patchwork quilt. And they didn't use fences because they wanted to have every square inch possible to actually plant crops. And so basically, different fields would have, you know, you just kind of had to know who the owners were. So really, Ruth, being an outsider, did just so happen to come upon Boaz's field. There was no, you know, Boaz's ranch sign, nothing like that. She really just kind of happened to stumble upon it. But the language that the author is using here is very ironic. It's almost to the point of being sarcastic because remember, he's just told us in chapter 1, nothing happens without God doing it, right? And now what he says quite literally is that chance chanced. That's, that's the, 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 the literal translation of the Hebrew word there is chance, chanced. So it's almost like he's saying, wouldn't you know it? Chancey McChancerton over here is how Ruth got there. Wink, right? He's wanting us to pick up on the fact that there's no way this was just chance. Then as, as Boaz is introduced, he, he greets his workers, right? Like, like the good Presbyterian apparently that he is. The Lord be with you. And the interesting thing here is that the way the author sets up the greeting that Boaz gives and the response that he gets from his workers, it's, it's, a, it's like a little short couple lines of poetry. And in Hebrew poetry, there is a way to set up the word order in order to draw attention to a very central underlying theme. And in this case, it's the fact that Yahweh is present. He is with his people He is among them. He is working and blessing and conspiring to bring about redemption for them. But really, it's Naomi who gives us the final clue about what's going on in this story. As I said before, it it wasn't that belief had, had left Naomi and had now returned. No, she was always very much aware of God's presence. Rather, it was the belief in his hesed that had returned. Hesed is, is the Hebrew word that uh, English Bible translators have struggled with for decades to figure out how to translate. And so we usually have like hyphenated terms. 
Um, sometimes we call it loving kindness or steadfast love or even faithfulness of God. And the idea behind this is that this hesed is the loyal love of God that is expressed in his covenant making. It's a tenacious love. God simply will not let his people go. No matter how much they kick and scratch against him, fleeing to Moab is not enough to get rid of God's love. Getting bitter against him is not enough to shake God's love. And as Naomi experiences the generosity of Boaz and that washes over her, her entire perspective shifts. And she says that this Hesed, this loyal love, this kindness of God has not stopped. He's continuing and continuing and continuing to pursue his people. This tenacious, loyal love of God is what will eventually drive him to the stable, and to the cross, and to the tomb. His fierce care for his creation and for his covenant people is the story of the gospel. At the end of the last chapter, Ruth cried out that God had made her empty. And then what happens? Thousands of years later, God empties himself in Jesus. Naomi cried out that God himself had afflicted her. And God responds by, in Jesus, taking on all of our affliction. The gospel is the story of a loving God who enters into brokenness and defeats brokenness by becoming broken himself. So how are we to respond to this gospel story, the gospel of Ruth? I would suggest three different ways. Some of you here may be the Boazes of the group. Some of you may have an amazing amount of resources and wealth at your disposal and And if that's you, and you have been entangled by the hesed of Jesus, by the loyal love of God that gave up everything in order to have you, then be ready to display generosity. Be ready to display generosity. Look for the outsiders. Look for the outcasts. Look for the weak. And then don't be content to simply provide for them physically. Provide for them emotionally and spiritually. Feed their souls. Feed their hearts and speak to them of the love of Jesus. Commend them for taking refuge under his wings. Others of you here are perhaps the Naomi's of the group. Faith hasn't left you, it's just left you bitter. Perhaps you are barely able to come here this morning because you, you sense that God is very real and very much against you and has left you completely empty. To you, I would say, hang on. Know to the point of being irrational that the love of Jesus is tenacious. It is jealous and it is fierce. And he will not let you go. Others of you here are perhaps the Ruths. You're outsiders and you know it. And perhaps you've even been wounded because you're an outsider. And yet, somehow, you find yourself here. Maybe you don't even know why or how. Perhaps it's because you're on the edge of faith. And I would say to you, be bold. 
reach out to Jesus. Ask him to show himself in love to you, and he will. Whichever group you find yourself in, all of us have to realize from this story that God uses his people to display his loyal love. Do you see how the love and faith of Ruth affects Naomi and Boaz? And the love and faith and generosity of Boaz affects Ruth and Naomi? God uses his people to put his love on display. If you have been grabbed a hold of by the gospel, then that's what you're called to. You're called to display the loyal and tenacious love of God. Allow him to love you more deeply and then allow him to love other people deeply through you. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the truly generous one. You are the redeemer that this story points to because you have given generously to us of yourself. You didn't give of your excess. You gave everything. Would you work in our hearts as we come to your table? For those of us that are weak, would you give us the boldness of faith? For those of us that are bitter, would you give us the return of faith in your love, in your goodness? For those of us that have been blessed by you, would you give us generosity as we leave this place, transformed by your love? We pray this in your name. Amen.